This is your Olympic hero and former WWE champion, Kurt Angle. And I just wanted to give a shout out to my guys, Clint and Noah. When it comes to covering sports, there is no one better. And believe me, that's true. It's damn true. Kiss stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, limousine right, jet flag, son of a gun. Gentlemen, you are the top 1%, the elite, best of the best. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. You are now listening to the Elite Sports Podcast, the pinnacle of hard-hitting sports talk, featuring weekly expert analysis and top-notch interviews. And now, please welcome your hosts, Clint Schweitzer and Noah Groniger. Welcome back to the Elite Sports Podcast, where the last couple of weeks have certainly yielded an exponential amount of tremendous interviews and that's what it's all about here on the elite sports podcast guys again the website gasnsports.com and noah this week we're going to be welcoming two very important former figures in the kansas city chiefs organization former head coach from the kansas city chiefs dick vermeil and former gm carl peterson are going to be joining us today talking about their new endeavor together vermeil wines which, by the way, a new sponsor here on the Elite Sports Podcast. We are proud to be partnering with Vermeil Wines. Go to vermeilwines.com right now and check out all the deals. But you're going to want to hear these interviews. It's unbelievable. Noah Carl and Coach Vermeil, same podcast. Can you believe it? I'm fired up for this one. I cannot believe it. If you told a younger version of myself, maybe in the, the 2000s, that we're going to have Carl Peterson and Dick Vermeil on a, a podcast 10 plus years later, um, I would have told you that is not possible. That's not happening. How is this going to take place? And this is the very show that it is going to take place. And you mentioned it right there. Vermeil Wines is now a sponsor. Use promo code ELITE for $1 shipping. Uh, so, that is a great deal for all the listeners out there, whether you're a wine enthusiast or you just want to get a taste of the Napa Valley wines, definitely go to vermeilwines.com, hit them up, use our promo code ELITE and uh, get that $1 shipping. Definitely take advantage of that. But man, this show, Dick Vermeil, we got to talk about the 2003 team, the great offense that he had here, but the woeful defense, the no punt game against the Colts that year in the playoffs. Uh, Priest Holmes fumbles, Tony Gonzalez gets an offensive pass interference, or maybe we can win that game. Why didn't he kick an onside kick late in that game? And Carl Peterson, all the years, all the greats that he drafted here, Tony Gonzalez, Will Shields, Derek Thomas, just some Hall of Famers to name there that he drafted. And just bringing football back to Kansas City, one playoff appearance in the previous 18 years before he got here, before he brought Marty Schottenheimer here. Then they become the winningest team of the 90s. There's so much here. I just cannot wait to get this started. Yeah, when I look back on it, I think uh, we all remember, you know, growing up, the foundation that was laid by Carl Peterson. He comes to Kansas City in 1988, immediately hires Marty Schottenheimer, drafts Derek Thomas, really laying the foundation for what the Chiefs organization became, laying the foundation for what our sports fandom became as kids growing up in the 90s. That's all important. And Carl deserves more credit, I think, than people give him. For 20 years, he had really unabashed success here. Never, of course, uh, got to the Super Bowl. And we're going to talk about that and talk about kind of how he constructed his rosters using some of the quarterbacks he did, bringing in the likes of Joe Montana and Marcus Allen in 1993, getting to the AFC Championship game that year only to lose to the Buffalo Bills. We're going to get into all the playoff heartaches, uh, the media coining the term King Carl. We're going to get into all that with uh, 
Carl Peterson. I remember running into Carl. We went to a Chiefs Kingdom radio show mm. back in, uh, I think, 2007, which was an abysmal season, a very forgettable one. And uh, they were talking about trading Jared Allen. He said they were not going to trade Jared Allen. The trade winds up happening. Of course, we had Jared on our show just a few weeks ago. We're going to talk to him about kind of being a shrewd negotiator. John Tate, Jared Allen, those contracts that he was famously involved, you know, with the agents and the back and forth and some of the stern things that Carl would would say and do. We're going to get into all of it and Coach Vermeil. I mean, you think about the resurgence of the Chiefs organization in the early 2000s. After 1997, the Chiefs would not make the playoffs again until 2003, that great team led by Trent Green, Tony Gonzalez, Priest Holmes, Tony Richardson, Eddie Kinnison, Johnny Morton, and that offensive line, Willie Rofe, Casey Wigman, Brian Waters, Will Shields, and John Tate. We're going to get into all of that and uh, kind of what happened. Why they were, were they unable to build a defense to match that? And something tells me, Noah, the coach is going to remember each and every one of those details that you just mentioned about the no punt <laughs> playoff game against the Colts, as that would wind up being the only playoff game he coached here in Kansas City as he retired after the 05 season. Actually, a very solid, well-balanced team in 05 that just didn't make the playoffs because of a tiebreaker to the Steelers. Steelers go on to win the Super Bowl as a wild card. Coach Vermeil retires. In comes Herm Edwards. And uh, we had to wait basically until 2013 to get this organization back to where it needed to be, finally reaching the summit of the Super Bowl. Yeah, you mentioned it. After 2012, we tried, We needed to get back to where we wanted to be after that dismal season, abysmal season with Romeo Cornell and uh, just everything that happened going 2-14. Uh, and 14. And the Chiefs were looking for a new coach after 2012, and Clark Hunt called Marty Schottenheimer. He called Dick Vermeule. He asked for suggestions. We're going to ask Dick Vermeule about that because apparently he gave names like Bill Cower, John Gruden, and Andy Reid. And then Andy Reid uh, called... Uh, Dick Vermeil and asked him, what about Kansas City? So we're going to have to learn what uh, Dick Vermeil told him on that phone call that made Andy say, yeah, Kansas City is going to be the right place for me. And we're going to have to ask Carl and Dick both about Kansas City today. They have a relationship with Andy Reid and just what their emotions and what they felt. And if they talked to Andy after that or during the playoff run, uh, the Chiefs bring back the Lamar Hunt Trophy to Kansas City. Uh, Lamar was the owner with uh, Carl and Dick for a time. And then they do bring back the Lombardi Trophy for the first time in 50 years and just their emotions with that, finally seeing the Chiefs reach the pinnacle, reach the mountaintop, like you said, in our Super Bowl 54 champions. Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. First, former Chiefs, Rams, Philadelphia Eagles, UCLA Bruins head coach Dick Vermeil. We want to go ahead and welcome him to the show right after this. Bring a spectacular piece of Napa Valley right to your doorstep today with Vermeil Wines. Former legendary Chiefs and NFL coach Dick Vermeil started Vermeil Wines back in 1999, but his undying devotion to bringing a taste of Napa Valley to the masses actually goes back generations. Well, you know, it started as a hobby of making 150 to 200 cases of, of Cabernet, Jean-Louis Vermeil Cabernet, my dad's name and my great-grandfather's name. Vermeil Wines are grown in Coach Vermeil's hometown of Calistoga, California, at the top of Napa Valley, where the vineyards are over 100 years old. Browse all the signature wine options or become an official member today at VermeilWines.com. Choose from three, six, or 12 bottles and enjoy a 15% savings with shipments each February, May, and September. You'll also get access to exclusive offerings and events such as virtual wine tastings with Coach Vermeil himself, as well as member-only wines. Try the Signature Club where you get one case per year, a 20% savings, four bottles of each Cabernet. These are the highest rated wines at $1 shipping all year. 
To join, visit VermeilWines.com now or call 707-254-9881. Use promo code ELITE for $1 shipping on three plus bottles of wine. This will also apply to your first wine club order if you mention ELITE at sign up. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. How's everything uh, been going? Well, it was a hectic day. Hectic. Uh, anyway, uh, I did have you down on my calendar, okay? But I, I screwed that up. But I didn't recognize the email. You did send it. So it's all my fault. No, we can't, <laughs> no we can't possibly heap any of this onto you, Coach. It's been too long of a couple months to heap any blame on anyone. This has been crazy. How have you been holding up? Are you keeping in, in high spirits? No, very good, really. You know, I've actually enjoyed having an empty calendar. I didn't realize uh, how much fun you could have with spare time. <laughs> it's been unique. It's been a good experience. I love those helmets. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you recognize those? <laughs> you bet. You bet. Those they are, carried those... me. They carried me, those helmets did. Well, we had Carl Peterson on earlier in the day, and um, he's already sending us some Vermeil wine. So, we, this, you know, we already got ours coming, so we don't even... Hold him to it now. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> oh, we will. Don't let him forget. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 we did, we're not going to get it quite in time to do the uh, online. You get to do if you if you buy the the certain package, you get to do the online taste test with you, right, Coach? Yeah, I have that in uh, fifty five minutes. Oh, and that's another one. That's the other one. That's the uh, signature series, the, the three leading cabs. Tonight we have one with the the club members. That's tremendous. Yeah. Well, it's first time I've done it, so uh, we'll see how. Oh, it goes. interesting. Oh, that's. I want to urge everybody, all of our listeners, to go uh, to vermeilwines.com. You can get all the information. And you guys have such a plethora and an array of different price points. And I think that's so key into this because there's a lot of people, you know, like Noah and I, we're kind of beer drinkers by nature. So kind of take us through that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just kind of take us through some of your products and what you might suggest, kind of the average person kind of looking to dive into this whole wine thing. Well, you know, it started as a hobby of making 150 to 200 cases of, of Cabernet, Jean-Louis Vermeil Cabernet, my dad's name and my great-grandfather's name. And uh, anyway, uh, then we did that. We were doing that when I was coaching the Chiefs for fun. And then uh, we turned that into a business. Uh, some friends with real money that didn't mind losing it said, let's turn the whole process into a business. Now we're making 2,500 <laughs> to 2,800 cases a year. Wow three leading Cabernets, a Blend 34 for Super Bowl 34, the Roman Numa, a Sauvignon Blanc, a Chardonnay, a uh, Zinfandel from a, a uh, 111-year-old vineyard, and uh, we make a little Syrah for our club members and a little Charbonneau, which we're in tonight's wine club tasting. We're going to be tasting the Charbonneau, which is, there's only 80 acres of Charbonneau in the uh, United States. And it's different. Uh, ours, actually, right now that we're going to be tasting tonight isn't quite ready to drink. It's a 2018 bottle. So it's not quite mature enough to really uh, accentuate its quality. But we'll taste it anyway. But uh, that's what we do. And uh, yet, yet right now, our tasting room in Napa, 1018 uh, First Street, is closed. And it's been closed since March. Our online sales have been okay. Our wine club lost about 45 members uh, because of the pandemic. We were up to about 375 at one time, which uh, and it was growing. We, our best two months in the business were January and February. Then all of a sudden, wham. But uh, we're not crying about it. That's what the whole world's suffering from it, and we can handle it, and uh, we'll move on. Yeah, no yeah absolutely. No and question that, about it. I love that emblem on your shirt there. The Mizzou one? No, no, the other side. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was like, I, 
I know you coached at UCLA. I didn't know if you had any ties to, to Mizzou or not, but um, we had Carl on earlier. We talked about uh, kind of your time uh, here in Kansas City, but I want to I take you back to, the, to 2001 because you had won the Super Bowl with the Rams and uh, following the 99 season, and you decided to retire again. Obviously, you and Carl Peterson, uh, you know, have ties dating back to, to the 70s. Why Kansas City? Why that time? You'd already retired for like 14 years before going back to the Rams. So why, why did Carl just dress it up that much for you? And how, how <laughs> well, did it work? Uh, first off, after a few months after retiring from the Rams, I recognized that I probably shouldn't have done it. Mm. It was an emotional decision. My family wanted me home. Uh, we were able to do something that we'd always tried to do is win a Super Bowl. Uh, I also had a trophy on my back desk here behind me uh, when I was coach of the year first time. And everybody on it had been fired after winning the coach of the year. And I didn't want to end up one of those guys. You know, and, and the opportunity to go out on top and turn a program over really ready to play well to somebody who was doing a good job like Mike Martz, uh, sounded like a good idea. It was a mistake. I don't sit, you know, wallow in my tears about it. Because, but the reason I went back is Carl Peterson and Lamar Hunt, you know, and uh, Carl and I are very, very close. And Lamar Hunt, I had great admiration and respect for him. He's the number one owner in the NFL in history, in my opinion, in all the overall qualities, humble, uh, allows general managers and presidents to run the team, coaches to coach, and enjoys every minute of it. Uh, and he, he asked me permission to come into a team meeting. I said, Lamar Hunt, you own this team. <laughs> you own this team. And to work with Carl, I have admiration and respect and love for Carl Peterson. I've known him since he was a kid when I, I kept him on the UCLA staff when I took the job. And he's always done a better job than I thought he would. I mean, you just – you know, he takes a great job but makes it better. He did the same thing in Kansas City. And what he did there, I don't know if it's totally uh, appreciated, but he did a wonderful job for Lamar there. Now, they didn't win a Super Bowl or, or many playoff games. And that's today, that's how uh, everybody is evaluated uh, based on a few ball games. But over the time, he, he did a wonderful job in Kansas City. And you know something, guys, you, Kansas City is a wonderful city. Yeah, they have passion as they do in these other cities. Uh, They're not quite as intense. I don't know if they have a mean streak like some cities have, you know, and uh, I just I enjoyed the five years there probably as much or more than any city I worked in because of the people, because of the ownership, because of Carl Peterson, because of the players. Hey, look at this right here. That's it. Will Shields shirt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How can you do any better than a Will Shields? You know Oh, I mean? absolutely. So it was a great experience. The Eric Hicks, the Trent Green, and all these people I'm still in contact with. Casey Wigman, these guys, I'm still in contact with them. They're, they're like my family, those guys are. And uh, Willie Rofe, my God. So it's, uh, it was a, 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 an experience that went beyond my own expectation. My only disappointment is I didn't do a good enough job or help people do a good enough job present the Lamar Hunt trophy to Lamar Hunt because he deserved it long before uh, now, you know, and Andy Reid came in and got it done, which I love the guy. Well, yeah, not since your time here have we seen an offense this explosive and dominant. Uh, where did your thoughts go to and your emotions, kind of what emotions did you have, not only seeing Kansas City bring the Lamar Hunt trophy back home, but winning Super Bowl 54 behind Patrick Holmes and your good friend Andy Reid? You know, I couldn't feel, I couldn't help but feel a little bit of it uh, emotionally myself, having worked there five years and knowing how much it meant to the Clark family. Yes, Lamar's 
gone, but the rest of the family are there. And I know what that or what that organization itself and the city means to them. And then to bring a Super Bowl trophy to them, uh, I don't think there's any organization, any company, any fan base more deserving than a world championship trophy. And Andy Reid did it. You know, and I have great admiration for Andy and have for a long time. I consider him a good friend and I'm a big supporter of his. And uh, he just, he, he's a remarkable coach and he, he's already proved it. But to win the Super Bowl now, he's really backed up what everybody believed in the first place. He's a remarkable coach. Well, we got so close back in 2003. That team was so special. You built a record-setting offense here behind a lot of those offensive linemen you talked about, uh, whether it be Willie Rofe, uh, Casey Wigman, um, Brian, Wash- Brian Waters. Those Brian guys. Waters, my God, Tremendous. you know, man. You right, know. yeah, absolutely. Tony Gonzalez, you know. Oh, it, it, you you yeah. built that offense. and it was something, something – you developed Dante Hall into a, a dynamic play, into the X factor. Just kind of take us back to that and, and your kind of idea of how you wanted to, to build this football team. Obviously, you've got Al Saunders to run the offense. He's familiar with all this. And then uh, your buddy Greg Robinson's on the defense. And the defensive side never quite caught up, and that's kind of where we fell short there. And that's – you know, that happens. That's football. But just yeah, kind of take us it, to that. You know, our, our, our defensive drafts just didn't go as good. I probably screwed them up as much as anybody. You know, we didn't – you know, we draft the number one kid, and he doesn't show up to training camp. Remember him? Doesn't show up to training camp. When does shows up, he's out – he's 20 pounds overweight and fat. So we worked him out to get him in shape. The first game he gets in, he breaks his arm. So we lose him for a year. Ryan Sims. Yeah. Yeah. Sims. Yeah. Ryan, you know, and he was, we thought he was a, a fine prospect, but it just never got out of it. We never got anything out of it, really. So that hurt us, you know, and a couple other choices we made it didn't end up being good choices for us. And uh, uh, that hurt us. We could never get the defense anywhere close to the quality of the offense. You know, the offense over that five years period, you take all the numbers out, and they were the number one offense in football, thanks to Al Saunders and Charlie Joyner and, and Mike Solari and these guys. They, you know, they, they did a great job coaching those kids. And, and uh, I just uh, appreciate them and respect them very much. And we worked hard. We worked very hard. But you can only outscore so many teams. Right. Sooner or later, it catches up with you. You know, we couldn't play. If we would have been matched up against somebody other than Peyton Jordan, I mean Peyton Jordan, my God. Peyton Manning, other than Peyton Manning, uh, we might have been able to excel and go on all the way into the next one. We weren't a good matchup because of him. We just couldn't rush the passer hard enough to prevent him from throwing accurately, nor could we cover efficiently enough to prevent him from beating us. No, that's still the only playoff game in the history of the league that no team punted. No punts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and we score and, you know, get the long run and and a fumble. And, you know, I think Priest Holmes had a yeah. 147 or 170-something yards rushing. Oh, yeah. We did, but if Tony Gonzalez gets a touchdown pass call back for shoving off today, that would be a joke. It wouldn't be called. Okay. But All these painful it. memories, you know, Dick. In 2005, we had a playoff caliber team. Sure. But 2005, if the, that 2005 team gets in the playoffs as we played the last six or seven games that season, we're a contender. We're a contender. We win 10 games and don't go. I mean, that's, yeah. I'm glad they're changing the rule, finally changing the rule. But uh, that was a good football team. It was, a, you know, you never know once you get into those play. You know what? There are teams that have won the Super Bowl, had nine wins. Where were yeah. they all season? Where they got in the playoffs, they were better. 
we had 10 and didn't get in. Yeah. You know, and I still, I'm still a little pissed off about it. But yeah, I know. The Steelers got in. Yeah. Yeah, the Steelers got in that year over, I think, on a tiebreaker, and they wound up winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. They were the other wild card team yeah. that took our spot. So that well, shows you how crazy it is. Them. All the more power to them. Yeah, that's the way it you is. Know, we talked about 2003, that playoff game, the no punt game against the Colts. Did you think about kicking an onside kick? What was the conversation like? Uh, you kicked it off uh, deep to Peyton you Manning. Know, uh, it's a good question. I, you know, I was never really aggressive in that kind of thinking. If I went back today, I might be more so with analytics and all these different things and all the coaches trying these things on fourth down and, and different things. You know, eventually some of that rubs off on you. I was more the old school do the most obvious right thing now and don't gamble. If you want to gamble, go play poker somewhere, you know, <laughs> because if it was a sure thing, they would call it sure thing taking rather than gambling, you know? Yeah. So I didn't, but I think today if I were to do it over, I would, I would consider more change up things other than the, the basic routine of handling those different situations. Well, do you think Trent Green gets enough credit because he oh, threw boy. for he threw for four thousand yards four consecutive seasons? He's uh the Chiefs give up a, a first round pick to get him and a second round pick to get you in oh one. So those those were our first two draft picks. You and Trent Green, uh, just talk about him as a person as a player. He's tur turned into a tremendous broadcaster for CBS, and I know you know a little something about that as well. Well, you know, I have great admiration for him. This guy, I'm very close to Trent. We stay in touch, and uh, I know what's going on with him and his family and his boys and all his, his daughter. And I, yeah, you know, he's very close to him. And, he, you know, and I, of course, had him at the Rams. We'd have won the Super Bowl with him, I think. I really mm. believe that. Very fine play. That's why we gave up a first-round pick to bring him there. Right. I don't know how many people would have done that. Thankful for Carl and Lamar Hunt allowing us to do that. But he played well. And I can't understand why he's not in uh, the Hall of Fame there yet. I just, I just cannot understand what a guy has to do. <laughs> to prove prove he belongs there, but sooner or later they will acknowledge it. Brian Waters went in last year, and yes, he he belongs there. You know, but uh, Trent's very special player. In all the players I've coached in my career, he would be right up there with the number ones. And in in when you put a total package together, regardless of Hall of Fame, regardless of All Pro, regardless of pass percentage, you put it all together, he's an unbelievable package. Mm. Great package. You know that. Yeah. Yeah, we do, certainly do. Uh, going back to a certain game in 2002, you start off the season in dramatic fashion against the Cleveland Browns. And here in Kansas, Kansas City, oh, that game is known <laughs> as the helmet toss game where Dwayne Rudd thought he had Trent Green sacked, takes his helmet off, tosses it. And then you see John Tate lumbering down the field. Morton Anderson gets to kick a game-winning field goal on an untimed down. What do you remember about uh, that game, the back and forth uh, between you and the Browns? You know, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was involved with the miracle, the Meadowlands, okay, in 1978. So something good is following me around, I'll tell you that. And, I, you know, I always feel sorry for the other coaching staff in those situations. There's a, a little humbleness about that because you know how you would feel if you were in the same situation. You win the game and lose. Hard to win the game and lose. Cleveland did it. New York Giants did it. You know, and I, I respect the coaches and staff and the profession. And to see that happen, of course, I'm glad it happened for our team. And it's obviously we didn't quit playing, you know, or else we don't win it. We didn't yeah. give up and say it's over. But uh, you always feel a little sorry for the other guy within that, that atmosphere. It's, you know, that's unique 
Well, we did ask Dwayne Rudd to come on the show a few years ago, and he responded with two words, F-U. So yeah. <laughs> we never, that's still pending. Is that um, the name of a university? What, I think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Coach, we've got to ask you about, um, it's been uh, over a year ago now that we lost uh, Gunther Cunningham, who you brought in in 2004 uh, to run the defense. He comes back to Kansas City after being the head coach before you, um, and he comes, you bring him back in after uh, having to reluctantly fire Greg Robinson and, 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 and just talk about Gunther, how he was as a coach. He was always just so intense and he's just such an impetuous guy. I've always just, you know, talk, talk a little bit about him and it's been a tremendous loss. Well, you, know. you know, I go back with Gunther when he was a young assistant coach in the West Coast in college when I was. So, you know, so I've known him a long time and I knew Carl admired him and respected him and uh, he did what he thought he had to do and, and, and then brings me in there and I'm not getting it done. And uh, Greg Robinson wanted to end up being a head coach in major uh, head uh, defensive coordinator and head coach in, in major college. So he goes to University of Texas, wins a national championship, and becomes a head coach of Syracuse because of it. So he got what he wanted out of it. We brought Gunther back. Uh, I had no problems bringing him back. He had no problems coming back because he trusted me and I trusted him. I liked his passion. You know, we didn't surround him with enough good players. In his style of defense, too, you've got to have a few dominating guys on the line of scrimmage. Of course, everybody does. But, with you know, as aggressive and intense as Gunther is and was at that time and always was, really, as a young coach, maybe even more so, uh, you, you need the guys that, that can uh, that dominate the pass rush. And we had good players, but we didn't have the dominating pass rusher that you need to be successful, especially within that scheme. Uh, but uh, you know, again, uh, the next year we weren't, we played a much tougher schedule the next year. And early in the year, we didn't score as many points uh, later. But in 2005, if you look at our schedule, the last six or seven, we beat like five playoff teams in a row. Yeah. That's hard to do, including New England Patriots. So that's hard to do. And uh, it was a pretty good football team by that time. And our defense was playing better by that time. You know, But anyway, we just didn't surround Gunther and the staff, Peter Junta, and those guys were the enough quality, quality, high-end Super Bowl quality players. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to go back to your time, we know you're close with a lot of your players, and, but 2003, X-Factor, the human joystick, Dante Hall. Oh, yeah. Talk about that year he had in 2003, returning kicks in four consecutive games, Steelers, Texans, Broncos, yeah. the reversing the field. Yeah. And then he did it against the Ravens twice after the first one was called back and they re-kicked. Yeah, well, you know, to me, he's the finest ever. If he had stayed in the game and kept his head in the game, and for some reasons he left Kansas City, he goes to the Rams, he gets banged up two years in a row, he gets disappointed and hangs up. I, I stay in touch with him. He drinks for meal wine, okay? Uh, and I stay in touch with him. He's a father of three wonderful kids, and he, he's do, doing well. But uh, I think he gave up the opportunity to be the number one guy in a, a potential Hall of Fame kick returner because regardless of what these other guys have done, he was, the, I think, the best combination of both the punt and kick return guy, you know, uh, I mean, he could, like I used to say to him, Donnie, I don't care if you return for a touchdown. That's really nice, but just bring the ball out. So when our offense goes on the field, they walk straight out in front of the bench. <laughs> right at the, I settle for the 50 yard line. Anytime. Uh, great human being. I watched him mature. He's a, he's a great dad and parent. He's a, he, I, I, you know, I have great admiration for it. Yeah. We stay in touch. 
Well, we have such great admiration uh, for your time here in Kansas City, and we can't thank you enough for jumping on with us today. Definitely got to ask you about uh, Patrick Mahomes here, just the specifics about what makes him so great. You had a great quarterback in Trent Green and definitely a, a pretty good one there in Kurt Warner and St. Louis as well. And uh, Ron Jaworski, a guy we know pretty well back in, in Philadelphia. So <laughs> talk to us about Patrick Mahomes, what makes him so great, and if, uh, you know, what, how amazing would it be to be able to, to coach a guy like that that just has all these yeah. intangibles well, and arm yeah. angles? And, yeah. Well, I, I say, first off, he's got it all, and he's with the right coach. He could have it all, not be with the right coach, and not know he has it all. Mm-hmm. That's happened, okay? And uh, it, let's see what happens with Brady, okay? Let's see what happens as he goes off and away from the Belichick regime. But when you, Andy Reid's never had a quarterback who couldn't play. Now, he's never had one that could play like this guy, okay, <laughs> because of his innate talents. and the, the, he, he does things you can't coach. You know, just like Kurt, Kurt Warner did some things and made some throws, you can't coach him to do it. You know, you can't, you, you can't predict that sometimes in the draft. There's probably been as many great high draft pick failures at quarterback position as any position, real disappointments. But Mahomes, when, when Andy moved up, I'm thinking, who's he? You know, <laughs> he proved who he was. And, you know, Andy's never going to take credit because he's going to give credit to everybody else. But Andy made a great move there. And he's destined, staying healthy, to be the finest ever mm. because he's got things, along with the innate accuracy, he's got other innate things you just don't coach. Andy can't coach it. I can't coach it. Uh, Vince Lombardi can't coach it. He's got it, you know, and uh, to keep him healthy, surround him with the right people, uh, he's going to win some more championship i mean world championships yeah we certainly hope so and here in 2020 dick they tell us that the running back has been devalued but those chiefs teams with that dominant offensive line jason dunn pretty much a sixth offensive lineman is back oh, up yeah. tight end great tony richardson leading the way been around. yeah yeah priest patience allowing blocks to set up uh, do you Priest's think the devotion yeah. to yeah. and the execution of the run game still has a place in today's nfl Oh, yeah, sure. You know, tell me a running back is invaluable when you hand it off and he goes 60 yards for a touchdown. It's still six points. I don't care if you throw a 60-yard touchdown pass or a 60-yard touchdown run. It still counts the same. And I think you've got to be very, very careful of underestimating uh, the contribution of a great running back. Now, there's a lot of good ones, uh, not a lot of great ones. I think the 49ers will bring back the true running game to the NFL. Mm and you'll see more people follow their lead. They're a downhill running team. They come off the ball. The offensive linemen have weight on their hands. They knock you off the ball. They don't try to open the holes or horizontally. They open them vertically, push you off, and move you. They get onto the second level. They're mobile, tough, and they run the football. And see, now the defenses are so used to everybody throwing the ball 45 times, 50 times, and running 20 that I think it's – I think they're going to start a trend. I really do. To coming back to how many teams used to do it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, their run game was strong last year, and they're just going to continue their ways. And you've been so gracious with your time here, Coach. Just one last thing before we let you go. When the Chiefs were looking for a new head coach after 2012, Clark Hunt called you and Marty Schottenheimer to ask your opinions. Uh, You were said to have given him three names, Bill Coward, John Gruden, and, of course, Andy Reid. Take us back to that time when Clark called you and the, asking about coaches, and then when Andy ended up calling you as well, asking about Kansas City. Well, you know, I don't want to take any credit for it. You know, Clark Hunt did this, and Clark made the decisions. He asked a question, and I gave him those three names. And he said, those other two guys I don't think want to coach. And I says, I know Andy Reid does because I talked to him, and he's a friend, and I know he wants to 
coach. And I, there, you just couldn't hire anybody any better. I don't. And I also said, I don't think you can afford to go any other direction. You know, you, you, you've got to get a guy that's done it before. And uh, you know, Clark stepped up and did it. They met and talked. Andy called me. What do you think? I said, take the job. That's as long a conversation it had to be. Take the job. There's no better place or better people to work for. Yeah, and I, I think John Gruden might wish he still wasn't coaching, and maybe he made a mistake there. Um, he was gushing over Patrick Mahomes during his quarterback camp. Then he's like, oh, no, I'm back in the division. This is going to be a long decade. So, Dick, can't thank you enough. I'll tell you what, we've, we've got our, our Vermeil wines coming, and it's not going to be uh, – I know you tried to give Morton Anderson a bottle one time, and they, the league stepped in. The league is going to allow this to go through. We're going to get the wines, and it's going to be all good. Do you know who the Vermeil wine best customer is? Who? Morton Anderson. Ah, that's, that's <laughs> incredible. He buys, wine. he buys our magnums, okay? <laughs> now, I don't that's know who a, drinks them with him, but uh, well, he everybody, is, he's a great wine guy. You, coach, know, you know, Trent Green Trent Green, and Todd Collins are limited partners in my wine business. I really? didn't know that either. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're a piece of the action. Of course, we have no action. We're in the hole, but well, other than that, well, we'll we're going to get you. Again, gonna, I hope, during another week or two. We're going to get you some, Coach. Uh, everybody go to vermeilwines.com. It's uh, tremendous to have caught up with you. Thanks so much for your time, and we'll definitely have to do it again soon. Thanks so much. All right. I apologize for screwing you up. I'm Not at all. Thank you. No Take problem. No worries. It Take was an care. honor. Thank you, Coach. That was unbelievable. What a pleasure that was, especially having Coach join us on Zoom. And guys, you can do that too if you become uh, you know, a member over at vermealwines.com. You can have virtual online wine tastings with Coach. I'm in. We got our wine on the way. And you know, especially during these crazy times and you know, there's no concerts. A lot of travel plans have been canceled. A lot of people are staying home, drinking more. You know what? I need to learn more about wine. I'm going I'm to be honest with you, kind of a beer guy. I'm going to learn more about wine. I'm going to delve into it. And Coach Vermeil put me right in that mood. And I tell you what, I can't wait till our next wine tasting, our virtual wine tasting with Coach, because that was truly incredible. Like you said earlier, to think that our, you know, college age selves, you know, being 19, 20 years old, when the Chiefs made that run in 03, that someday we'd be doing a podcast and Dick Vermeil would be joining us. Man, there's sometimes where I'd really just, I'm in disbelief. I've got to kind of pinch myself. That's why this show is called The Elite. Not because of our opinions, not because of what we say or do, but because of the guests we bring on and we bring those on for you guys. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Noah, that was awesome. And truly one of those, I can't believe this moments. Yeah, it really is. We've been doing this since uh, 2012. We've always wanted the expert opinions, the elite takes in sports. And that comes from people that played the game coached in the game, were general managers, were a part of the National Football League, or a part of college football. We do that as well. So we wanted the opinions of people that are in there, in the trenches, broadcasters, analysts, all of them. And so that's why we are here, and that's why hopefully you are listening weekly to the Elite Sports Podcast, because we bring you interviews like this. We've got Dick Vermeil. We just heard him talk about, yeah, he gave those names to Clark Hunt of Bill Cowher, John Gruden, Andy Reid. And Clark Hunt said, well, I don't think Bill Cowher and John Gruden are going to want to leave their studio gigs. And so Andy Reid was the man and Andy called Dick and uh, he, Dick told him, look, Kansas City's the place you want to be. They're passionate. It's a, under great ownership with the Hunt. So that is where you want to be. That's where you have to be. That's You need a change from Philadelphia. Uh, your time has kind of run its course there and you need a new spot and Kansas City's perfect. And so that's why we got Andy Reid and that's why we feel like Dick Vermeil has a little bit of a hand in this Super Bowl. He helped get Andy Reid here. And so we are Super Bowl 54 champions uh, in a small part, thanks to Dick Vermeil. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Coach Vermeil, for that. Well, let's keep things moving right along here. We're going to take you to our interview with none other than Carl Peterson, who was the Chiefs GM for 20 years. We're going to go really in-depth here and talk about his decision to hire Marty Schottenheimer back in 1989, drafting Derek Thomas and beyond. Guys, this is a tremendous interview, and we're so happy to have done it. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Carl, how's it going, my friend? It's so great to have you. How's it been going? Well, it's been going well. Sequestered here in Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, there are worse places to be, uh, you know, to have to hide out in, I guess. Uh, how's, how have you been holding up? You keeping the spirits high these last couple months? What's, what's it been like for you? Oh, it's been fine. My wife and I, you know, we have a lovely condo here on the Country Club Plaza and uh, the big cat. Uh, you know, most, <laughs> of the restaurants, most of the restaurants have had uh, takeout, so we eat out almost every night anyway, but... Uh, beginning to get back to normal a little bit. Last night we had dinner at uh, Capitol Grill, and that was great. Nice, yes. I, I'll tell you, 2020 started off so wonderfully. Uh, a Chief Super Bowl victory, first one in 50 years, Carl. <laughs> what was your emotions like when, when, when that occurred? I mean, what, from your perspective, what, what were you – what was going through your mind as that all happened? Well, I, I was thrilled to death, first of all, but uh, specifically for, for three people, uh, the guy that hired me and – was the best boss I've ever had, and Lamar Hunt, and obviously his lovely wife, Norma. We've been to all 54 Super Bowls, amazing. And then a longtime 30-year friend, uh, Reed, our, our head coach here, is just, Andy's done a marvelous job. So we were at all the playoff games, which were exciting as heck at Arrowhead, and then we went to the Super Bowl in Miami, and oh. uh, even went to the, uh, uh, the post-game party, and the... Uh, the parade. So I, I felt so good, frankly, for so many people that are still there. Uh, my last draft choice, I did let go, Dustin Colquitt, but uh, trainers, uh, equipment guys, uh, video, all the rest, and uh, felt so good for them, scouts, etc. Well, I well feel like yeah, I Carl, I truly believe that without your contribution uh, to this franchise and bringing winning football back to Kansas City, Maybe this doesn't all happen. We don't get Andy Reid. We don't win the Super Bowl. And we don't have Patrick Mahomes. So this should be just as part of you, like this Super Bowl victory, as the current members of this franchise. So I just got to say that to you, and thank you for everything you've done. Well, thank you for that. I, I did take the occasion, because there were a lot of uh, ex-Chiefs at the games, obviously, at, at the Super Bowl, at the parade, and so forth. Uh, every one of them, I say, hey, thank you for your contributions, because you did – paved the way for all of this to happen. And uh, it was a great experience for me and all those guys involved, players and coaches, staff, to uh, bring back the pride of the National Football League to Kansas City, and specifically, again, for Lamar and Norma Hunt. I was thrilled for them and for her. And I, uh, I'm just sorry that Lamar wasn't here to see it personally, but I know he was there in spirit. No question about it. And of course, you were part of this franchise for 20 years. But for, before we get into some of that, I got to talk to you about your involvement in Vermeil Wines because we've got Dick coming up uh, later here on the show. Can't wait to talk to him as well. But uh, Vermeil Wines, this goes back generations in his family. And this is, uh, you know, a Napa Valley. And it, it's something that I remember him talking about when he was the coach here. How did you kind of get involved with this? I know you've known Dick for a lot of years. And I believe there's a package you can purchase, which even gives you a live virtual testing with Dick himself. Maybe we needed to set that up with you as well. We should, is it too early for that? Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, as you know, I was with Dick three times. Mm -hmm. First two, uh, I worked for him. The third one, he worked for me. 
but uh, we never felt like we were working for each other. We were working together. I think it was in 98 that he said, listen, I've always wanted to do something a little bit away from football. I want to grow a wine and name it after my father and my grandfather, John Louis Vermeil. And of course, Dick grew up in the Calistoga area in the Napa Valley and still has family there. And so he said, would you like to uh, get involved with me? I said, sure. And uh, so we started off, frankly, as a small boutique winery, about 250 cases a year, and it just made a Cabernet Sauvignon named Jean-Louis Vermeil. But then when he retired for the third and last time from the Chiefs, his last you know five years as a head coach in the NFL was with us, and it was a great thrill to have him as my coach. Um, myself and a couple of other partners who've been involved with, with Dick, said, why don't we try to make this into a business? So we got a business manager, uh, obviously with a wine maker and so forth. And uh, we're up to about four or 5,000 uh, cases a, a, a year and uh, have enjoyed it. We got six varietals, two whites and four reds, actually a few others. But, but Dick has really put himself into it. He's coaching again. He's coaching our winery. And uh, he's always out there for the picking of the grapes in September and the crushing of the grapes in October. And uh, he's a hands-on guy. But we've had a lot of fun with it. I've done a lot of wine tastings, wine dinners with him, and he does them all over the country. And so uh, it's been a great experience, a lot of fun. Uh, it's a very competitive business. I would tell you there's almost 500 wineries and vineyards mm. in the Napa, Sonoma area. But um, we think we've got a great wine, and Dick, of course, brings such prestige to it. Do you have one specifically that you could suggest? Because there's Okay, just in the interest of full disclosure, people like Noah and I, you know, we're more casual beer drinkers. We don't delve a lot into wine. You know, you go to, you know, the supermarket, you've got $10, $20 bottles. How, how, how can you relate this to, to people like us that are maybe trying to, to get into to, to wines? Because this is a, you know, there's, you have high-end wines, you have ones that are very affordable. Just kind of talk about some of the options people have. Well, those are probably more appropriate uh, questions for Dick <laughs> because I told him when I went to it, came in as a partner, a full partner. I said, look, there's only one job I want to be, do. I don't want to do marketing and sales. I don't do administration. I want to be the taster. <laughs> How'd you swing that? That's, that's, a good, that's the best job of all of them. <laughs> well, we do have, we do have uh, I think, a price range for everybody. In fact, our most expensive premium uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is only about $150 uh, a bottle. And we've got... Uh, a Sauvignon Blanc, uh, a Chardonnay, a wonderful Chardonnay. But if you ask me the one I like the most, and, and there have been so many, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I guess the highest rated one, we got a 96, I think, uh, from Wine Spectator. It's a 19, excuse me, 2016 Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's called the uh, Vermeil Picket Road. And it's uh, very special. Uh, the family, he will tell you, the Fratiani family, they've known for four generations, that's where our wine is grown, right there in Calistoga, and uh, about 186 acres. But again, Dick is the best guy, mm -hmm. and uh, believe me, he'll sell it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get my debit card ready for that interview later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope you'll enjoy it uh, if, if you do get it, because uh, it's awesome. And, you know, we've been marketing places where Dick has coached, obviously in Missouri and Kansas, mm -hmm. in uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, California, you know, he was out there years ago at Stanford and then the, the Los Angeles Rams, UCLA, we were together there. And uh, 
And so it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of work. Dick's really put all the work into it. But I think, uh, like I said, to me, having knowing him so long and so well, this is just another offshoot of him coaching again. And uh, he loves it. That's great. And Carl, going back to your career, your start here in Kansas City in December of 1988, you're hired by the great Lamar Hunt. We talked about him before. To, uh, you take over as team president and general manager. How did that opportunity come about for you? And tell us a little bit more about Lamar, what kind of man he was and what kind of owner he was to work for. Well, I, I think he uh, – I met him first time when I was with the Philadelphia Eagles, and I was the director of player personnel. Dick was the head coach. I met him at a couple uh, – owner's meetings. And, uh, you know, you could tell right away what a fine person this guy was. His reputation preceded him. I mean, he was the most modest, stay in the background type of guy there was. He never wanted any reflection on himself, but only the players and the coaches and where it should be. But um, he called me in November of uh, 2000, excuse me, 1988, and said, I'd like you to come and look at my team. And I'd like you to do it quietly. I said, fine, I'm happy to do that. So I flew out here to Kansas City. I was in Philadelphia at the time and uh, took a look at his team. And then he said, I'd like you to tell me what you think you need to do if, if you are offered the job to run the team. And uh, so I put together a little report for him. And he called me and he said, uh, you're my guy. And I, I told him, frankly, I'll be candid here. Uh, it's a lot to ask Dick, but... If, if you want me, I've got to be the president, general manager, and CEO. And it's not because of an egotistical thing. It's because you have to have direction from the top down. And right now, unfortunately, the, the team was in disarray. And frankly, uh, the term was apathetic. People just didn't care about the Chiefs. And they had been down so long, 15, 16 years of losing a one playoff a year and uh, John Makovic, and then they fired Makovic. Um, so he said, it's done. And uh, I couldn't have asked for a better boss. I mean, the guy was super. He'd call once a week from Dallas, Texas, and say, Carl, how are we doing, and how can I help? And he meant it. And I'd say, Lamar, I need you on Sunday to get here to ju judge a tailgating contest out in the parking lots because, as I said, we're going to emphasize tailgating. So the one thing I know about the Midwest uh, fan, because I – scouted every college in, in the country and particularly in the Midwest, they loved a tailgate. And I said, that's what we're going to push. I said, it's going to hurt us at the concession stands, but we're going to get, we got to get fannies in the seats. We got to fill this beautiful stadium, 78,500. And, you know, they were only putting about a third filled uh, each yeah. Sunday they played. So anyway, it began. And then obviously uh, I hired a dear friend, uh, who had called me after he got fired at Cleveland, Marty Schottenheimer, and uh, uh, the rest is history, as they said. He did a marvelous job. We were together 10 years. They said uh, the Cleveland writers, it wouldn't last, that marriage wouldn't last a year, and uh, we lasted 10. But um, that's how it all began. And again, uh, I can't say enough about uh, Lamar. He was a hands-off owner, but he was also involved. And, of course, he was a pillar in the league. Uh, when he and Ralph Wilson and uh, uh, the New York owner and, and these guys would talk, the Steelers, they all listened, everybody, because they wanted to hear what Lamar Hunt had to say at the league meetings. And they always thought about their, the league first and their franchise second. And I said, Lamar, that's, that's, 
terrific. I said, but I'm going to think about the Chiefs first and the NFL second. <laughs> and you definitely did that. Just talk a little bit more about, you know, building that culture here. The Chiefs had only been in two playoff games since Super Bowl four. Uh, when you took over and immediately you hire Marty Schottenheimer, you draft Derek Thomas, and that's sort of the foundation for the culture. People think that the, the terms like Chiefs Kingdom, Arrowhead being the loudest stadium in the NFL, that all was built right there under your watch. And uh, hiring a Marty Schottenheimer, we were able to make a documentary for Marty and we presented it to him a couple summers ago at his home in North Carolina. And just sort of talk about your relationship with him uh, kind of then and now as Marty's obviously suffering from Alzheimer's, uh, just what a tremendous coach and, and person he was. Well, I knew Marty going back to when I was coaching my first year with the Philadelphia Eagles with Vermeil from UCLA. I coached the, the tight ends and, and wide receivers. And Marty was coaching outside linebackers for the New York Giants. So we played them twice a year. And uh, he had some pretty good linebackers. And anyway, I gained a great deal of respect. I think it was mutual. And we kept in contact. And then I went the administrative route. And he kept going up the uh, defensive coordinator ladder and then to Cleveland as a coordinator, and then eventually the head coach. I knew I wanted to hire a, a seasoned, uh, experienced veteran head football coach that had been a winner. And Marty had been to two AFC championship games. He had won four division titles at Cleveland. He did a great job. Frankly, Art Modell did us one of the biggest favors there was by firing him. And uh, he called me, uh, this is Marty, in, in uh, early January and said, listen, I know you're looking for a head coach. I'd love to interview with you. I said, you're on. And uh, we interviewed a couple times. I was interviewing a couple other people, but uh, my mind was pretty well made up. And I, I said, I'm going to call the owner. And Lamar said, Carl, if you think that's best for the Chiefs, let's do it. That was his, his line all the time. And I said, this is the right guy. Marty came in. We hit the ground running. Um, the fans were hoping that we just might be uh, competitive, you know, maybe a 500% season. And, uh, we went, uh, eight, seven, and one, we had a winning season. We were a half a game out of uh, the playoffs. And then of course, for the next seven, eight years, we're in the playoffs every year. Outstanding football coach that really could, uh, deal with young men and they would trust him. And that's what I think Marty's uh, watchword was. He wanted to gain their trust. And when he had that, then they would do anything for him. The first draft was obviously, I'd, I had hired a defensive coach and I knew what he would want. And uh, we went out and worked out Derek Thomas at uh, Tuscaloosa, University of Alabama. And uh, took Bill Cower, who was our defensive coordinator with us. And he, uh, he gave Derek every drill he could imagine and couldn't tire him out. And he'd come back and give me that big smile and say, Coach, what else do you want to see? Mr. Peterson, what else do you want to see? And uh, we knew then. We were just hopeful that he would fall to the fourth pick. And thank goodness he did. And so he became, you know, the, the building block there. And uh, Marty built a great defense. And my job was, once I hired the head coach and helped him hire his staff, uh, football support staff, and got him the players, was to fill a stadium. I said, look, players want to play in an environment that they love. And we got a chance here at this magnificent stadium. And uh, like I said, we're going to find a way to do that. And I had some great people working for me in marketing and sales. And we came up with the theme of, you know, tailgating. And once that got going, it just took off like a, a fire. And we, uh, 
We had a lot of fun in those uh, first 10 years. Yeah, moving forward a little bit to 1993, you draft Will Shields. That's a big move. But the really big news is when you bring in Joe Montana and Marcus Allen. If you can, take us behind the scenes, kind of in the decision to pursue Joe and Marcus, achieving that and getting both of them to Kansas City and what they brought and meant to the team at that time. Well, first of all, both Marty and I concurred we needed to have a quarterback. And uh, we'd like to get an experienced one, just like when I hired Marty, an experienced winning one. And uh, Lynn Stiles was our director of player personnel on our staff. And Lynn and I go back to UCLA together under Vermeil. Lynn said, look, we know one thing, that the 49ers have two great quarterbacks. And with the CBA came in, the salary cap, they couldn't keep both Steve Young and uh, Joe Montana. So I called Carmen Policy, the president of the 49ers, and I said, okay, which quarterback do you want to trade me? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, <laughs> Joe or Steve? And he said, well, I don't want to trade either one. I said, I know that, but I also know the salary cap, and you're not going to be able to keep both of them and pay them both as starters. And so we started a negotiation, and, of course, uh, when we finally got him to – agree that he would trade Joe. Um, he wanted a first, second, and third round pick. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that. I said, Joe is certainly worth a great deal, but he's also 36 years old. He was coming off an injury. That's the injury that gave Steve Young the chance to get in and start and take him to the championship. And I said, uh, you know, I'll give you a first, but you got to give me something back. So we went back and forth and eventually, uh, I think I got a, a fifth round pick and uh, uh, a player, their starting safety. And Joe came in and he was really great. He was the best. And uh, his wife and he loved Kansas City. I mean, they went out in one afternoon and found a home. And so he was ready to come. But of course, I knew that I was going to have to do a new contract with him. Uh, Tom Condon was his agent and uh, IMG. And so, uh, we put together a contract very quickly, and he came. And all this time that we were doing this, uh, we were looking at, at unrestricted free agents, and obviously the one that really caught our eye was Marcus Allen. We played him twice a year with the damn Raiders, and uh, he was leaving. There was no, no uh, question about that. He and Al Davis did not get along, and so – we're recruiting him as well as some other teams were recruiting him, but uh, couldn't trade for him. You know, I had to convince him this was the best place for him and with a contract and so forth. And when uh, the trade was announced that we had Joe Montana, I got a call from Marcus and he said, Carl, did you get Joe? And I said, we got Joe. He said, I'll be a, I'll be a chief. He said, for two reasons. One, he said, I've always wanted to play with Joe Montana. Almost every running back in the, in the league wanted to. And number two, I get to play those damn Raiders twice a year. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up with both of them. So that was our first and second round draft choice, if you want to say. And yeah. the third one was Will Shields, who obviously has gone on to a Hall of Fame uh, uh, career. But um, getting those two guys really pushed us over the top. And, of course, took us all the way to the AFC Championship game. Yeah, you mentioned it there, the success you guys had, beat the Steelers, beat the Oilers, get to the AFC Championship game against the Buffalo Bills. But 1995, we got to talk about it. You guys make the playoffs. You take on the Colts in one of the coldest games ever played, 
Steve Bono throws three interceptions. Lynn Elliott misses three field goals. The game's lost 10 to seven. But we've talked to James Hasty on this very show about that game. And he said in the, after the game itself, him, Derek Thomas, Marcus Allen, they locked themselves in the equipment room and cried like babies. It, it still kind of hurts him to this day to where he felt like he let the city down and doesn't feel like he can come back to Kansas City. I mean, you hear those words, those emotions 25 years later. Now, maybe not quite to that extent, but do you somewhat share in those sentiments that James has? Oh, absolutely. You know, that, it was one of the bitterest defeats I've ever been involved with, whether it was uh, the college at UCLA or the Philadelphia Eagles or obviously here in Kansas City. Um, you know, it was a strange day. It was an ice storm. And uh, I'm going to make a controversial statement here. I'm not sure why, but uh, our offensive coordinator decided he was going to throw the ball rather than run it. And I know that was one of the reasons that Marcus was not happy. And on an ice field, it just wasn't working. Uh, you know, there were six field goal attempts that day. Uh, their kicker made one out of three. Mm-hmm. Our kicker made zero out of three. And that was the difference in the game. But you look back on it and you like to think, well, you know, things could have been different, should have been different. But that was, uh, up to that point, the toughest game that I've been involved with with the Chiefs. Yeah, James, uh, we talked to him, when we talked to him, he said that uh, Derek wanted to go into the locker room at the halftime and go at Paul Hackett because of all that throwing that he saw. So. That's, uh, that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> but I, I would tell you that the one thing you, you take out of that is you appreciate how much these guys love the game and love the Chiefs and, and felt so terrible after that loss. I, I know that to be true, that a lot of them just went to their lockers and in the equipment room and just let it go because uh, it was so we, we knew we were a better team, but we just couldn't get it over the top. And uh, that was also the case uh, in 97 as well, playing the Denver Broncos. Now we sat down with Marty Schottenheimer and we had to bring it up with Marty. We said, Marty, Gannon or, or Gerback, uh, whose decision was that? And um, Pat looked over at us and said, just ask Carl. So two years later, here you are. Uh, we're asking you, Carl, uh, Gannon Gerback, whose decision was that and kind of what led up to, to that decision being made? Well, the head coach makes the decisions on who plays. I mean, that's, that's always been my edict. I mean, uh, I have certainly uh, the final say on the 53, but once those 53 are decided, and I'm gonna, of course I'm going to take the head coach's input and all our scouts and, and assistant coaches and that. But then once the season begins, you know, he has the keys to the car. And uh, Marty, uh, you know, I, I think reflecting back, he, uh, he didn't want to make a change of, of the starter. And he really, uh, he told me, frankly, that he had experienced that when he was a player at Buffalo with the Bills. And he said it tore the locker room apart that, uh, that the starter – who had been the starter all year, then got hurt, and now came back healthy, was not given the job back. And so he, he said he was going with uh, Gerbeck. And uh, uh, Rich Gannon, as we all know, and he showed it later, uh, was a terrific, terrific athlete, person, and quarterback, and uh, did a great job when he went to those hated Raiders. But, uh, um, you know, I felt bad for Rich. I felt bad for everybody. I felt bad for the entire team. But again, that, that's just something that, that happens. And uh, you make those decisions, and then hindsight is always 20-20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. But 1998, 
Marty steps down after that season. And since that time, Marty has come out and said it's one of his biggest regrets, kind of feeling sorry for himself and not staying in Kansas City. How much did you and Lamar kind of push for Marty to stay? And how sad was it to see kind of the end of that magical era in Kansas City Chiefs history? Well, it was his first and only losing season with us. And I know that played a big part in it. Um, he came into my office after the season and he said, listen, I've been doing this a long time, uh, 10 years with Kansas City and four previous ones with Cleveland as a head football coach. 14 consecutive years as a head coach in the NFL puts a lot of strain and stress on you. It puts a lot of strain and stress on the president general manager, but I mean even more so on the head coach. And uh, he said, uh, I'm going to step down and, and retire. And I said, uh, uh, have you talked this over with Pat? And he said, yes, I have. And she's in agreement. I said, uh, should I try to talk you out of this? He said, no, it, it won't do any good. He said, it's time for me, Carl, to step away. I've got to take a deep breath. And he said, I don't know if I'll come back to coaching or not. Maybe I'll go into the communication business, TV, radio, which he did. But he said, uh, now is the time. I knew that I couldn't stop him. And uh, hugged him, thanked him for uh, the 10 years. It, they were great, nine of them particularly. Um, so many great memories. We got close in the playoffs almost every year, I think seven of those years, and uh, all the way to the AFC Championship game. I definitely think, and I know Marty feels it and everybody on that team, if Joe hadn't got hurt in the second half at Buffalo, uh, hitting his head on the frozen turf with a uh, sack by Bruce Smith, um, I think we would have won that game and gone to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and uh, in that Buffalo AFC Championship game, I think Kimball Landers, uh, the pass goes off his hands. It could have been a touchdown. It's intercepted. Tim Barnett drops a touchdown in the end zone. So there's a lot of missed opportunities in that game for sure. For sure. But, you know, uh, as the Chiefs today feel with Mahomes, we felt as long as Joe was in there, we had no matter how far down we were, hey, we've been down to uh, – Houston uh, the week before in the, in mm -hmm. the playoffs, um, we can come back. But I think when, when Joe got hurt and came out and the doctors called me up in the press box and said he's not coming back uh, today, uh, I think everybody took the wind out of our sails and, and that was it. But I think, again, I, you know, I really feel it strongly. If he had stayed healthy, I think we could have still won that game. Well, Carl, just talk a little bit about your kind of business acumen. You had kind of a love-hate relationship with the media here uh, during that time. You, you, they coined you the term uh, King Carl. Some kind of famous uh, negotiations went on with, uh, you know, guys like John Tate, later Jared Allen, who we just had on the show. But just kind of talk about that because I feel like it's, in hindsight, uh, that a bit unfair considering really what you were literally trying to do from the beginning is do what's best for the franchise. I know that's simplifying it quite a bit, but just kind of talk about that and how, uh, you know, how that was for you, how kind of some of the, some, some of the media maybe unfairly pegged you with that, with that moniker. Clinton, no, that's obviously untrue. I love the media, every one of them for my <laughs> 20 years here. I, every day I thought about them. I sent them Christmas cards and birthday cards. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, my problem with the media was don't speculate, write or talk or, or on television the truth. And if you don't know the truth, then don't speculate. And uh, 
I think, you know, and I know it's a tough job for you guys and became even more difficult with the internet and so forth. It became, in my mind, no longer be accurate. It, came, it became be first. Get it out there. Even if it's not accurate, don't worry about it. It'll be yesterday's news and we'll move on. And I didn't care for that. So mm -hmm. I let the media know that aspect. Um, I would tell you that even today I have some very, very good friends, close friends um, in the media and have been in the media for years. But uh, that was my number one point. And there were, there were a few people in this city uh, who, uh, who speculated all the time. And it was just hearsay, but they wanted to go ahead and run with it. And they did. And that, you know, they don't understand that that affects people's lives and their kids and so forth, players and their wives. Um, anyway, so, you know, it was a love-hate relationship, but I gained a lot of respect for a lot of uh, fine, fine reporters and still speak with them. And uh, they call me all the time and want some type of a quote, and I try to give them something that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carl, some of our fondest memories growing up are the great games in the 90s, whether it's Montana and Elway on Monday Night Football, uh, the Steelers-Oilers playoff games, the domination of the Raiders, and uh, the 54-yard uh, Stojanovic field goal against Denver in 97. Just take us back to some of your favorite games and memories of that time. Well, you, you probably named uh, most of them right there. I mean, they, uh, they were great. Certainly, uh, um, when we played the 49ers and Joe was our quarterback and Steve Young was there and uh, my, uh, my son, as I always affectionately called him, Derek Thomas, uh, we had the 49ers backed up down at the uh, one end of the stadium, which is always the loudest. And he put his hands over his head, signaling a safety. And you knew it was going to happen. And he yeah. came in and sacked uh, Steve in the end zone and we got two points. And I, I you know, I didn't think to be any way that we'd lose that game. Uh, certainly one that I think that will always resonate in my mind. And I think for the, certainly the players and the coaches and the fans that were there was our first Monday night game uh, after I came in and then hired Marty. Um, we were playing the uh, Buffalo Bills, Jim Kelly. They were undefeated. They were the defending AFC champions. And they had a hell of a football team. And uh, when I drove into Arrowhead, and the fans, of course, uh, I'd only opened the gates about four hours before, and they were lined up six hours before. The smoke, the haze, the barbecue of the stadium was uh, just spectacular. I knew then I could feel the electricity from our fans that generated to our players and that, that there's no way we're going to lose this game. And, uh, of course, Marv Levy was the head coach, a longtime dear talent, a Hall of Fame coach. And uh, he told me after the game that they'd never played in an environment like that, never played in a noise like that in an outdoor stadium. And uh, it was a spectacular game. And that really, I think, started us on a, on a major uphill climb. And Marty did a great job. The team did. Uh, it was just uh, an exciting time. But, uh, you know, there were a lot, of, a lot of great games in those first 10 years. There were some good ones, too, in the second 10 years with Vermeil and, mm -hmm. and that. But... Uh, Certainly, that, that was a great memory. Well, so many memories for us, Carl. I don't know, and I mean this, that, that we'd be where we are doing what we're doing, if not for um, our foundation growing up in Kansas City and those great Chiefs teams. But, uh, you know, before we let you go, I've got to ask you, it's been almost a year to the day since we lost Gunther Cunningham, of course, who came in after Marty coached here in 99 and 2000. 
I came back as a defensive coordinator um, in 2003 and just kind of what he meant to you, what, what kind of person Gunther was. He was a different cat. He was, in, he was just impetuous. He was intense. It's been almost a year. Just talk to us about, uh, about Gunther and, and kind of why he was the choice in 99 and him as a person. Well, the first thing you, you, you've got to remember is that the coaching fraternity is very close. And the first time I met Gunther Cunningham, I was coaching the UCLA junior varsity team, and he was coaching the Stanford uh, junior varsity team. We played each other up at Stanford. And uh, we were fortunate to win. I never let uh, Gunther forget that, okay? <laughs> he went to, you know, obviously Oregon. I went to UCLA and that. But um, I, I knew him and about his career. Uh, I knew him when he was at uh, the Raiders. Uh, he wanted to get away from Al Davis. He told me that personally. And uh, so when he got the opportunity to hire him, uh, Marty did, it was a great hire. And uh, as a defensive coordinator, I'm not sure there, there are many better than him. He could really uh, incite, get his defensive players ready to play. His passion was uh, overflowing. And um, so when Marty decided to step down and step away, uh, my decision was, look, I can go out and go through a long search for a, another head coach, or we had a, a still a defensive-minded football team. Uh, I can make this a consistent uh, move and, and not change a great many things because we've got a very talented guy here. And I said to, uh, to Gunther, do you want the opportunity? And he said, absolutely. And uh, so I said, you know, for the continuity of it and the consistency of it, we're going to just elevate Gunther Cunningham to be the new head coach. And I know that uh, uh, he worked very hard at it. Um, and he did, he did a fine job. Uh, not a great job, but a fine job. And I think he ended up 500% uh, in two years. Uh, but then I got an opportunity to hire someone that had been a Super Bowl winner, two Super Bowls. I had been with him three times. And so, you know, I brought in Dick Vermeil. I know a lot of people were surprised that Gunther came back a few years later to, with Dick to be the defensive coordinator again. I was not surprised. There was no animosity between myself and Gunther. He, he knew the business and it's a tough business. You got to make tough decisions. It's like cutting a player, a player that's worked his tail off and has done a great job, job for you. But, um, he, uh, he wanted to come back here, his wife, Renee, and uh, they were terrific here. And then I followed his career, obviously, to Detroit and that, and uh, was at his uh, memorial service a couple of years ago in Michigan uh, to say goodbye to him. A marvelous human being, great person. Um, he, uh, you know, he was an orphan in the Second World War. His dad was in the German army. He never knew his dad. and. Uh, uh, married his mother, and they, they moved to uh, 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 Lompoc, California. Uh, he married, she married, I should say, an, a GI from uh, the United States Air Force. And that's where he grew up and went to school. I mean, we knew each other very, very well. I uh, always had the highest regard for Gunther. And as a coordinator, I don't know there's a better defensive coordinator uh, in the game today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when we met with Marty, we were able to tell him this. We want to be able to tell you this as well. Clint touched on it. But those Chiefs teams of the 90s kind of really shaped and impacted us the most. 
if the futility of the 80s had continued, we may very well not be in sports media today. So just wanted to take a personal moment here to say thank you to you for the fond memories, steering the franchise back on track, kind of what led to uh, today's current success and helping lead us into what we're doing today. So seriously, Carl, just thank you so much for what you've done. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I appreciate that. And I accept that for all the players and coaches and staff that uh, were involved with us from uh, 1989 till, till I left 2009 uh, to hopefully help pave the way, like you said. And uh, the obvious is uh, the hiring of Andy Reid was one of the smartest and best things that uh, Clark Hunt and his family could do. And I know that Dick Vermeil was very supportive of that, as I was. And I talk with Andy after every game. We're 35-year friends. Um, and he and Mahomes are a great, great tandem. Uh, marvelous year this last year. I certainly hope, like everyone, they can repeat it. It's hard to repeat, yeah. but uh, brought us a lot of thrills also. But I appreciate those uh, 20 years, like I said, and appreciate it most for the best owner in all of professional sports, Lamar Hunt. Oh, Carl, so well said. Thank you so much for jumping on and doing with this, doing this with us today. It truly means the world and uh, continued um, health and happiness, my friend. Let's get uh, back to some level of normalcy here and we'll uh, continue normal things like just talking about the upcoming football season, hopefully in the near future, my friend. So thank you again and we'll have to catch up again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to send you a couple of bottles of Vermeil wine. Wonderful. I love it. Can't yes, wait. Thank, thank you, you so much, Carl. It was an honor, Carl. There you have it, in depth with none other than former Chiefs GM for 20 years, Carl Peterson. He pulled no punches. We talked about the playoff heartaches. We talked about the failures and the successes because there was plenty of those. And I feel like Carl Peterson, in hindsight, doesn't get enough credit. All I remember is people calling him King Carl, raising ticket prices, parking prices, concession prices. But what he did, the culture he built, was so beneficial to people like us. Noah, I don't think I'd be sitting here right now with you doing this if not for what Carl built here in Kansas City from 1989 to 2008. Of course, the last few years kind of went off the rails a little bit and uh, there was a parting of the ways there and it was probably time for a change of scenery for the Chiefs and for Carl. Hey, he was forthright. I got to say, he's a stand-up guy. I kind of wondered what, he, what some of his answers would be about some of that stuff. But man, that was so good. I, I, wow. Yeah, I'm glad we had a chance to tell him thank you for what you did, bringing winning football back to Kansas City, the winningest team of the 90s. Uh, you said it there. We said it during the interview. I'll say it again. I don't think either of us are here where we are right now, uh, if not for Carl Peterson and what he built and brought back to Kansas City uh, in the way of uh, the Sea of Red and Chiefs Kingdom and uh, all those playoff appearances and, and winning seasons. So uh, definitely great to be able to tell him thank you like we did to Marty Schottenheimer when we presented him. Uh, with the short little documentary film we made for him uh, and his family. And uh, Carl Peterson is a principal and partner with uh, Dick Vermeil Wines, so he's def heavily involved in that, and we can't thank him enough for, uh, you heard it there at the end, uh, him going to uh, send us a couple bottles of uh, Vermeil wine. So we're going to wet our palates with that, uh, experience uh, wine in a way that we haven't before. This is from Napa Valley. Uh, so this is uh, anything more than we have had previously uh, we probably had a little bit of wine in our lives, maybe some 13 bottles, uh, $13 <laughs> bottles from Walmart or Quick Trip. Uh, this is going to be a little more extravagant, elegant uh, than we've experienced before. But getting into all of it with uh, Carl Peterson there, the 97 Elvis Gerbach, a Rich Gannon decision. Uh, he says Marty made the calls on that. Uh, we've heard otherwise from uh, some players that saying uh, Carl ran the show and 
um, just talking to James Hasty, uh, he said that he, if he was a betting man and putting his money on it, uh, that he thinks that uh, Carl would have made that decision just because of the money and the contracts and uh, how he kind of ran the organization. He was the head figure in uh, the president and GM. Uh, but you heard it from Carl right there. He says Marty made the final call on uh, who was going to play or not play. And uh, the 95 decision, we talked to James Hasty. If you haven't heard that interview, please go listen to it in our archives But because he goes off. And you heard it in the interview saying that he just can't bring himself to come back to Kansas City. He still feels the pain like he let the city down in 95. And we asked Carl if he shared those sentiments, and he said he does. And uh, just powerful stuff there from Carl. And we cannot thank him and Dick Vermeule enough for coming on with us right here on the Elite Sports Podcast. Just tremendous, guys. If you like what we're doing, head to GASNsports.com. That's where all of our interviews are archived. If you want to see video of these interviews, we did it via Zoom. So the videos are there. Go to our website, GASNsports.com. You have all of our interviews, podcasts, articles. That and much more is there on our website. We hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. Tell your friends. Let them know that the Elite is absolutely keeping it rolling here into the spring and summer months. Even though 2020 hasn't exactly been what we had hoped for, we are keeping it rolling here. Your money stays and plays with us right here on the Elite Sports Podcast. Lots of big interviews coming up, Noah. Too many to name. We've got some in the can as it is, so keep your sites on us, the Elite Sports Podcast, all summer long. 